Welcome to Boobs Aren't Worth Dying For, the podcast dedicated to integrative health and healing from breast cancer and breast cancer treatment using the best of conventional and natural medicine. Your host, Deborah Beaumont, is an advanced practice nurse, functional medicine practitioner, and fellow breast cancer survivor. Hi, welcome back to this week's episode of Boobs Aren't Worth Dying For. My name is Deborah Beaumont, and I am your host. I am a registered nurse, a clinical nurse specialist, and a cancer survivor myself. For those of you who are new to the podcast, thanks for joining us. Just to let you know, the goal of the podcast is to bring you education and information about dealing with breast cancer and breast cancer recovery from a functional and integrative perspective. Very excited about our guest this week, who I think is going to share with us some really valuable and important information that we all need as we're navigating our recovery. My guest this week is Dr. Lisa Alshuler. She is a naturopathic oncologist based in Arizona. She is a professor of clinical medicine at the University of Arizona. She is the associate director of the fellowship in integrative medicine at the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine. She completed her naturopathic medical training at Bistir and did a residency in naturopathic medicine. She received her BS from Brown University. She is the author of two books, uh, The Definitive Guide to Cancer, which is now in its third edition, and Definitive Guide to Thriving After Cancer. Dr. Alshuler also hosts a podcast, It's called Five to Thrive Live and is co-founder of the iThrive Plan. I am so pleased that she can join us today and share with us her knowledge and her wisdom in this area. She specializes in working with uh, cancer patients and particularly in helping them integrate lifestyle and functional medicine applications in their recovery. So I think she is going to share with us some very valuable information. Thank you, Dr. Al Schuler, for joining us today. Welcome to the show. Yeah, well, thank you for being here. I was introduced to your work actually several years ago when I personally, in my own recovery, got one of your books. And I was really impressed with just some really basic information that you had about taking a functional approach to treatment. And it was really very eye-opening for me. So I really wanted to maybe start off our conversation this morning um, asking you. if you could just maybe describe an outline of what you consider to be a functional approach to cancer treatment and recovery, because many of our women are not familiar with that area of medicine. Sure. So I'll just start by saying that um, my what I'm about to say is informed by my practice as a naturopathic oncologist. So as a naturopathic oncologist, I provide people who have been diagnosed with cancer lifestyle-based and natural therapies concurrent with the conventional therapies. So it's really an integrative approach. And um, I am also a cancer survivor myself of breast cancer, so have walked the path. And um, that obviously has influenced what I believe to be very helpful for people now as well. Um, So, you know, in general, I think when we're talking about cancer, uh, it's really important for people to consider that cancer doesn't play nice ever. It's a uh, very aggressive disease. It's um, the cells that become malignant have lost the normal rules of behavior. So they're kind of like the bullies in the playground and they just destroy everything in their wake. 
So cancer, unlike perhaps some other more functional type of conditions where we can experiment and try different things, cancer doesn't really give us that opportunity and it's really important to hit it hard. Um, so with that in mind, you know, conventional medicine is actually fairly good at that and getting better, you know, eventually, maybe not in our lifetime, but at some point I think chemotherapy will be really a measure of last resort and more of these targeted therapies will be used as just an example of how conventional oncology is evolving. But conventional oncology is really good at destroying cancer cells. And uh, that's important, but that's all it's really good at. So in the meantime, cancer cells grow within our body. And in fact, for a tumor to establish itself, it needs to co-opt the behavior of the cells around it. And that's now referred to as the tumor microenvironment. And the quality and the character of that tumor microenvironment is very influenced by our lifestyle, by the food we eat, the exercise we do or don't get, our stress levels, supplements that we do or don't take. And that has a role not only in cancer control, but very much so in cancer prevention. So, you know, for me, it's really important that we consider an integrative approach so that we're really paying attention to both the body in which the tumors are growing, as well as destroying the tumors itself. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, I like how you were talking about the fact that cancer doesn't play by the rules. And I think in my own education with my clients, one of the things that um, I hate to be the bearer of bad news is particularly when it comes to breast cancer is that many of them are not prepared for the fact that this is kind of a, a lifelong management program. Unfortunately, in the area of hormone-mediated cancers, we're never really out of the woods for that risk of recurrence. I think that's where these lifestyle factors really make a difference. If someone feels like they can really take control of their lives. Um, I find that it, it's also very important to look at these things when you're recovering from the side effects of chemotherapy and radiation. As you said, that is an effective way to kill cancer cells, but it also has other impacts on the body. And I find that a taking a functional approach, looking at lifestyle and um, supplementation is really important when you're looking at recovering from that. For sure. You know, I think um, the good news in what you just said is that breast cancer used to be a pretty universal death sentence, even in the, you know, a couple generations back. And nowadays, most women who are diagnosed with breast cancer will not only be cured of their disease, but will go on to live a, a fairly long hopefully, cancer-free life. Uh, another very large percentage of women will live with breast cancer as a chronic disease. So even metastatic breast cancer, women can live with that disease for quite some time. Of course, it still, unfortunately, can be very lethal and uh, certain types are more aggressive than others. But in essence, because of the way that breast cancer is now diagnosed at an earlier stage and because of the evolution, particularly in the treatments um, after surgery and radiation, the, the hormonally-based treatments, we're really starting to see women live longer uh, who have been diagnosed with cancer. So, you know, that's the good side of, of what you just said, because the other piece is that in order to gain that survival, women do have to endure, in some cases, fairly significant side effects from some of these treatments. There are some ways through lifestyle and supplementation and so forth to minimize those side effects for a lot of women. 
but that is a real issue for sure. And I definitely want to spend our time today um, talking um, <clears throat> about how to minimize some of the side effects or, or how to understand what we're doing when we take tamoxifen and AIs, because I think every woman is probably put on some combination of a regime. But I, I really did want to highlight something that you said that I think is really important, which is even if you are diagnosed with an advanced stage of cancer, stage four, there is now the opportunity to live with cancer as a chronic disease. It is no longer a death sentence. And I think that that particular understanding is something that there's still a lot of opportunity to educate mainstream medical practitioners about. I, I think that that particular mindset comes from functional medicine. Um, all too often, one of the things that I'm very interested in doing in the podcast is actually doing some um, exploration or, and some interviews with people who work in the area of metastatic breast cancer because this, this concept of living with it as a chronic disease is really important for women to understand that, that there is life, that there is hope, that a, a, an advanced diagnosis is not the end of the story. And um, I think we need all the hope we can get because that's certainly some of the most devastating information you could ever have. Yes, absolutely. And that's fortunately true for most women with breast cancer. And of course, I want to also acknowledge the women who are unfortunate in the type of breast cancer that they're diagnosed with, because for some women, it will be the cause of their death. Um, and it's of no fault of their own. Uh, right. Just you know that the, there are some cancers that have a very aggressive nature and behavior. So well, just um, just as as a highlight, and for our women who don't know that, there are several different types of breast cancer. It's not just one diagnosis. It's affected by hormones. Um, you know, certainly women are familiar with concepts of like triple negative, which is very different, and it behaves very different than hormone positive cancers. There's different types of breast cancers. The symptoms present differently. Um, detection is different, and how you manage it is different. I, I just uh, this is this is information that um, I think you know kind of can become second nature if you're kind of in it, like me and you. But a lot of women don't know that, so I, I think that's important to bring up. For sure, yep. So, in terms of uh, our conversation today, I'd really like to talk about um, tamoxifen and aromatase inhibitors because um, we've talked about it, and um, I think it's probably part of, I, I don't know if it's 100%, but I can't imagine, but it's probably part of every woman's treatment plan. And there's a lot of education I think is needed in this area about what the drugs are doing, how they are different, because they do two very different things in, in how they act in the body, and then how we can address some of the side effects, or at least know what some of the side effects are taking the drugs. Yeah. So for every woman who's diagnosed with an estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, she will likely be recommended at some point in her care, typically after she has surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, or any one of those that's part of her treatment plan, um, starting an anti-hormonal therapy or an endocrine therapy, as it's often referred to. And that usually comes in the form of either tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor. So tamoxifen is used typically for women who are premenopausal. Um, sometimes if postmenopausal women don't tolerate the aromatase inhibitors, they also can be offered tamoxifen. 
and they're, they accomplish the same end. They just get there different ways. So tamoxifen basically is a drug that blocks estrogen receptors. And the reason why that's so critical is that for estrogen receptor positive breast cancers, what that means is that the cancer cells in those tumors express these estrogen receptors. And these estrogen receptors act kind of like catching mitts and estrogen molecules are the ball. And when the catching mitt grabs onto the ball, the catching mitt is pulled back into the cell and inside the cell, then that pulled in estrogen triggers various pathways, various genes turn on in response to that estrogen and the cell starts to divide. It's stimulated to divide. So in essence, the estrogen receptor acts as a cell proliferant or a cell growth accelerator. So the idea is that if we can block that effect, then we can slow down the growth of the breast cancers. And in fact, um, by blocking those estrogen receptors, other pathways get more active, which can cause the cell to undergo something called apoptosis or cell suicide. So it's a very, it can be a very effective therapy. So tamoxifen blocks the mitt. So it doesn't allow the ball to be caught by the estrogen receptor. It sits in there, doesn't activate that receptor, but doesn't allow estrogen to either. Arimidex and exemestane and some of these aromatase inhibitors work a little differently. They block an enzyme in tissues which convert a precursor hormone into estrogen. So aromatase inhibitors basically decrease the number of balls that are available to be caught by the mitt. And so the end result is the same, less estrogen activation, but the way that we get there is different. And the reason that we do aromatase inhibitors in postmenopausal women is that their estrogen production is very low at that point. That's why, for example, many menopausal women take hormone replacement therapy. They take estrogen because they're so low in it. So there's less estrogen being produced. So something that additionally blocks the production of estrogen has a much greater chance of being effective. In a premenopausal woman, that woman is producing so much estrogen, it would be really hard for that uh, aromatase inhibitor to be effective. So instead, we have to block the receptor. Both of them have very different side effects that, that a woman will experience subjectively. And both of them have different um, risk factors. Mm-hmm. So let's, uh, let's uh, dive into tamoxifen first. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you see as some of the common side effects of that drug and what women may experience after taking it. Yeah. So, you know, I will say that there are some side effects that both aromatase inhibitors and tamoxifen have in common, and those side effects are really the result of decreased estrogen. Right. So what you see both of them causing are hot flashes. Um, Both of them can cause joint pains, although that's more of an issue with aromatase inhibitors. Uh, With Over time, with decreased estrogen in the tissues, both of them can cause vaginal dryness, which can lead to sexual dysfunction. In some women, lower estrogen affects their ability to think clearly, so they have some cognitive issues like difficulty multitasking, remembering where they put the keys, that kind of thing. Tamoxifen, more than aromatase inhibitors, but again, this is really due, both both can cause this due to low estrogen, can produce mood changes, specifically anxiety, and for some women, depression. So those are kind of shared. Um, Now, tamoxifen uniquely has uh, a risk of creating 
what's called thromboembolism, which are women who take tamoxifen are at slightly greater risk of throwing clots. And the risk is fairly small, but for somebody who has a history of any kind of clotting disorder or even a close family history of a clotting disorder, that can be a significant concern and they should be monitored for that. Um, Tamoxifen can also uh, cause the uterus to build up its lining and there's a slightly increased risk of endometrial cancer from tamoxifen. The risk is fairly low. It's like a 2 to 4% increased risk. So it's a very small increase. And most of that risk is in the first year of tamoxifen use. So past the first year, you're pretty much good to go. But it should be in people's minds because they need to be going to their uh, annual exam or their OBGYN on a regular basis to have their uterine lining checked while they're on tamoxifen. So those are kind of the main side effects, I would say, of tamoxifen. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's, that's the first piece of education is if you're going to take this, you have to be really uh, conscious of your yearly checks and, and making sure that you're having your pap smears and that um, you're, you're not... Um, I, I just know so many women who are like, oh, I haven't had that done in a few years. That, that's not yeah. really a wise approach if you happen to be put on... on tamoxifen. Yeah. And I forgot one other really important one. This is kind of a, uh, I get a little soapboxy on this one and I can't believe I forgot it, but um, tamoxifen is unique in that about two thirds of women on tamoxifen will develop extra fat deposits in their liver. And over time, this causes a condition called fatty liver. This is particularly true in women who have extra weight, but even in thin women, this can happen. And fatty liver is, you know, used to be thought of as just kind of a benign thing, no big deal. There's a little bit of extra fat in the liver. But as it turns out, women, anybody who has fatty liver is at increased risk for insulin resistance, which is a pre-diabetic condition, increased risk for cardiovascular disease, increased risk for further weight gain. So it's a very important issue and the challenge is it's asymptomatic. So women will not know that their fat is, that their liver is accumulating fat. Um, The only way to find that out is by getting imaging. The less invasive form or way to do that is with ultrasounds. And sometimes that's done periodically, but um, there's also, uh, there's ways which we can discuss of kind of minimizing that risk but also as women are on tamoxifen over time, it's a good idea to have their blood levels checked for hemoglobin A1C, for fasting glucose and fasting insulin, for measures of inflammation like C-reactive protein. These are things that are not typically done in a routine blood screening except for the glucose, but will help to see, gosh, is there some insulin resistance starting to develop? Is there indication of inflammation. Because if those things start to happen, they need to be mitigated and or, um, you know, just addressed in some way. Many doctors do not check fasting insulin levels, which in some way can give you like that crucial piece. Mm -hmm. What I tell women is basically that fasting insulin. So I'm I'm saying this because um, if any of our women you know, if this is resonating with them, you might have to ask your doctor to do it. Um, Because basically, uh, our bodies are really wonderful at adapting to the demands we put on it until they no longer adapt. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And so having a high fasting insulin, if you've got a normal blood sugar insulin pathway, you may not see a, an elevated blood an elevated blood sugar for a long time, but your body in the background is like, you know, generating all, all its insulin to keep your blood sugar normal because that's what insulin is supposed to do mm-hmm. until it can no longer do that because it, it basically wears out. And then all of a sudden you, you're like, no one ever told me that I was leaning towards being diabetic, but you can actually tell that by looking at a fasting insulin level. So, um, and, and as you said, it's not a traditional blood work marker. So it's something that, that our women need to talk to their doctors about. Right. So with that being said, and, um, you know, who knows, maybe I'll, I'll, um, see if you ever have another hour and we can talk about, um, Mm -hmm. prediabetes and how it, how it, um, presents. Um, uh, so, so that was a little um, snapshot overview of tamoxifen. So let's talk about aromatase inhibitors. And then I want to go back and, and talk about um, a little bit more specifics about what you were just saying. Okay. Yeah, so aromatase inhibitors, um, as I said, share some of the same side effects, hot flashes, some of the same mood disturbances, vaginal dryness, etc. But aromatase inhibitors are a little bit more known for their um, unfortunate ability to cause joint aches and joint pains. It can be kind of mild or it can be quite debilitating. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, some, that's probably the most common uh, major adverse effect from aromatase inhibitors that I've seen in clinical practice. Some of the aromatase inhibitors um, have a very low risk of causing a condition called osteonecrosis of the jaw and that's like where the jawbone kind of starts to break, but that's very rare. And in fact, the only time you really see that is in women with untreated and perhaps undiagnosed dental issues. So one of the things that I suggest right away for women who are starting aromatase inhibitors is to visit their dentist to get a really good thorough exam to make sure there's no hidden areas of decay and to have all that treated before they start the aromatase inhibitor, because that basically takes that risk down to almost zero. And then the other thing I'll mention with aromatase inhibitors is that there's a fairly low but not insignificant risk of um, some toxicity to the heart over time. So women who are on aromatase inhibitors uh, do have a slightly increased risk of heart issues and heart disease, which is something that may not show up while they're on the aromatase inhibitor. It could show up well past the aromatase inhibitors. So again, from my perspective, women on aromatase inhibitors uh, should be really cognizant of heart health. And, you know, that of course can be mitigated to some extent through lifestyle, reducing stress, eating a good diet, exercising. And there are some uh, sort of heart protective supplements that I'll often recommend. One of the things that I uh, really emphasize in terms of my education when I work with women is also the the increased increased risk of osteoporosis related to AIs mm-hmm. and it is not uncommon and once again it's it you know it's not every woman but as you said one of the main side effect profiles is it does affect joints and so anybody who is experiencing like joint pain stiffness you know I've heard of trigger finger that can very well be related to the low estrogen, to Absolutely. the medication you're taking. There is also an increased risk of osteoporosis. 
osteoporosis. Yes. So if you are already, A, experiencing osteopenia, which is on the scale of osteoporosis, a demineralization of the bone, it may not be the best medication for you. I often recommend that at least the women that I talk to, if they can, to get a baseline bone uh, density study and to monitor that. And if you notice it getting worse, then you really need to talk to your doctor about whether or not this is the best medication for you. Yeah, that's a really important point. And uh, a lot of oncologists now will will proactively suggest some sort of uh, bone density medication support. So they'll often recommend Zolodex or um, some kind of bone density drug, which themselves, you know, are somewhat controversial, especially in the world of integrative medicine. However, that being said, certain women, especially if they're younger and they already have osteopenia, they need to do an aromatase inhibitor and they, uh, they may, in fact, benefit from taking some of those bone density support drugs. Also, of course, from an integrative perspective, everybody on an aromatase inhibitor needs to make sure they have adequate calcium and vitamin D and magnesium intake, and that can be through a combination of diet and supplementation. Um, there's also a really key role for vitamin K in preserving bone density while on an aromatase inhibitor. Yes, ab- absolutely. And just theoretically, tamoxifen, for a long time, they didn't have aromatase inhibitors. Tamoxifen was developed before aromatase inhibitors. So in cases, say you, you are getting a bone density study, you, having, you are having increasing... Um, uh, osteopenia leading into osteoporosis. Women who are even considered postmenopausal or who have gone through um, surgery to actually put them into menopause at a younger age, they can still benefit from tamoxifen, correct? They don't have to necessarily stay on an aromatase inhibitor if the side effects are too, uh, too much for them. There, there's still some benefit to looking at tamoxifen even in postmenopausal Women. Yeah, absolutely. The difference between the, the degree of superiority from aromatase inhibitors over tamoxifen is a matter of a few de- percentage points. So it's um, definitely fine for women to do tamoxifen if they cannot or should not take an aromatase inhibitor. The other issue we should bring up is that nowadays, a lot of women are recommended to take 10 years of this, this endocrine therapy instead of five, which was for a long time the standard recommendation. And um, the degree of benefit in terms of reducing the risk of recurrence with an additional five years is, again, a fairly small benefit. It's just a few percentage points, but oncologists know the lethality of this disease, so they go for any few percentage points, rightly so. So they will make that recommendation, and um, however... At that five-year point, it's really helpful for women to know that it's not a matter of life or death, really, that extra five years, and that at that point, really, they should evaluate their symptom burden as a result of the medication in, compared to the potential benefit from extending it. There's also a test now that's available that uses the tumor tissue called the Breast Cancer Index Test. Right. which will help the oncologist determine if how likely a woman is to benefit from 10 years versus five years. More oncologists are now ordering the breast cancer index test at the time of diagnosis because they know this is going to be a decision point. And that's something that a woman should ask their, onco- their breast surgeon to order when they're originally diagnosed 
just to help give them more data so that they know whether 10 years is even something they should consider? I'll tell you that, uh, once again, I'm all about empowering listeners with information. I was uh, diagnosed with um, breast cancer in 2011. And although I don't uh, typically go home and uh, Google diagnoses, I went home and Googled, like, what the hell do I do? You know, I I was freaked out like everybody else. I wasn't in functional medicine at the time. And I, um, one of the tests that came up was an Oncotype DX test, which is what we had then, and it's even still available now. And um, in my first meeting with the oncologist, I was sitting in his office, and I said, oh, you know, what about this Oncotype DX test? Is it, is it worthwhile, or is it just some internet thing? Or, and he's like, no, we, we, we can do that if you want to. I'm like, yes, I want to. Yeah. That's a really good point, and that's really help. That's a good example of how important it is to be proactive. And you know, just to clarify, the Oncotype DX, which now thankfully is more standard of care than not, yes. helps the oncologist determine how likely a woman is to benefit from chemotherapy. So, right. what the Oncotype DX has done is it's really decreased the number of women who receive chemotherapy because many women who would have otherwise be been given chemo just because of the size of their tumor and the characteristics of their tumor now because of Oncotype DX are found to be of low risk and don't need, will not benefit from chemo. So that's available. Then that plus this cancer index test will tell that woman, uh, give that woman more information and her doctor more information about how long she may be a candidate for the uh, endocrine therapy. So this is, these are both really good examples of how oncology is becoming more personalized to the tumor, not necessarily to the woman, but to the tumor. <laughs> well, we're working there. You know, we're, 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 we're working on it. Um, but yeah, you know, and, and, uh, and the reason I tell that story is because even as a nurse, and even with someone who's very comfortable working around and, and working with doctors, um, it still took me to ask him about this test. And he was like, oh, yeah, you know, it's, but, but you know, that's, that's really the purpose of this podcast. The more education you have, the more you can ask questions. Um, not only, hopefully, it can get you the best care, but um, I, I think it can really help that, that sense of overwhelm and helplessness that you get when you get a breast cancer diagnosis. And so that when you do make these incredibly difficult decisions that we all have to face, um, that you can do it with a greater measure of peace of mind, that that's the right path for you. And it's not just that somebody told you to do it and you're not really clear what's happening. And I, I think that peace of mind is elusive, but I think having this kind of informed um, approach can help with that. For sure, hundred percent agree. Yeah. So, um, so given that, and and I do want to say um, just really quickly, you you talked about five to ten years, and and I have another podcast that actually talks about how you know what these statistics actually mean when they throw statistics at you because it can be really intimidating. Um, but but when they, with any of these treatments or with any of these um, meds, it's it's not like it's on a on an absolute scale of zero to a hundred and oh this gives you a seventy percent chance or whatever. It's always in percentage of your particular kind of tumor, and that's 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 why doctors do biopsy and testing. So you know, in, say in my own case, when I got my oncotype. Um, testing back, it told me that I had a 10% chance. 
of recurrence, whether I did chemo or not. And I was like, okay, if it was a 70, 10, that would have been a different conversation. But I'm like, it, it didn't change anything for me. And in the hormone therapy, so, you know, say it, you know, so when they say that it gives you, you know, a 50% chance, 50% of 10%, which is, you know, maybe a three to 5% improvement, it's not on an absolute scale. So when you look at some of the, in my opinion, when you look at some of the risk factors, those numbers can go up too, in terms of the complications you may have from them. So I think part of the, the balancing act is like, what kind of improvement can it give me in this statistical way? And what are the chances or the statistical probability of these complications? Like- yeah, you're, you're raising such an important point and it's very complex. People have to become kind of uh, mathematicians when they're dealing Absolutely. with Absolutely. And unfortunately, also, I think what you're saying, which I often describe to my patients as once you're diagnosed with cancer, there are no black and white decisions. It's all a right. shade of gray. And the reason for that is because it's all based on probability and statistics, as you're saying. And what you're saying is really important. Like, for example, if you, if, if I, I tell you, if I tell you that uh, if you exercise for at least 30 minutes at a moderate level, five days a week, you will reduce your risk of breast cancer by 50%. You'll have your risk of breast cancer. That's true. And that sounds really impressive, which it is. But it it's less impressive if your risk of recurrence is low to begin with, which is what you're saying. So if your personal risk is, let's say, 5%, you have a 5% chance of recurrence over the next 10 years based on your tumor characteristics, then we reduce that 5% to 2.5%. Right. So that's not as impactful. You know, it's going to make a difference, but it's not going to really make a huge difference. On the other hand, if your risk of recurrence is 20% and we can take that risk and have it, we're now talking about your risk moving down from 20% to 10%. So that's more significant. So, right. you know, all these things are relatively impactful depending on your starting risk, which is the point you were making. Right. And um, that's true for lifestyle therapies. That's also true for these endocrine therapies. Generally speaking, kind of across the board, tamoxifen and arimidex and exemestane, all these aromatase inhibitors are used because they reduce the risk of occurrence by 50%, just like exercise. Right. And so that's why they're recommended. That's always going to be significant, but it becomes a, a different conversation. If somebody has a low risk to start, they're taking this endocrine therapy, they're absolutely miserable. They can't walk anymore, so they can't exercise because their joints hurt so much. Maybe their bones are starting to break down, and maybe they you know, can't have intercourse with their partner anymore. I mean, their life is just miserable. That's and their risk starting risk is low. Maybe that fifty percent is not it's is not as impactful or not as weighty for them given their side effect profile. Right. So you know that not that there's a right or wrong decision for that woman to stay or not on the endocrine therapy, but that's just an example of how complex these decisions are and how it's really important to go into these. Uh, decisions and evaluations, knowing as much as you can, so you can always make an informed decision. And just know that there is no right or wrong decision. There's no black and white answer to this, but it's just you do the best you can with the data we have. You try to get a team of healthcare providers that you can trust and that will give you information. And then, you know, as you said, try to do some of your own research, not crazy, because that can get overwhelming too. But right. 
Dr. Google is not the place to go to treat your breast cancer. Um, But, you know, and I also have to say, um, in my experience at least, getting this kind of perspective, um, a lot of times you're not going to get this from many traditionally trained oncologists. It's just not how they're trained. It's not how they practice. And sometimes to to dig to do this kind of deeper dive, it does require working with someone like you or someone like me who has more of a integrative functional approach. Um, be, and, and I, I truly have had clients very upset with me because they want me to tell them yes or no. And I right. can't because yeah. it's a very it's a very personal choice. It it's it's never a zero risk. And and you know what I can do is really inform people as best I can, but that, that ultimate choice is, is a very personal decision. And there's no one that can tell you if it's right or wrong. There's no one that can tell you if you're having debilitating side effects from aromatase inhibitors that you have to keep taking a medication that, like you said, is impacting every other area of your functioning. Right. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a really important point. And the other thing I would say to that is that I think this is the power of uh, integrative oncology because Absolutely. There, is, there are things that we can do to mitigate some of these side effects and toxicities from these endocrine therapies so we can help them be more tolerable. So if a woman is committed to trying to stay on these drugs and she's miserable, we can provide therapies that will help her tolerate them better and in some cases make it really quite tolerable and they can live a very almost normal life. Um, for other women, it's just taking them down a notch, but to a point where they can manage, you know, and there's a degree of toleration too. Not every woman is going to experience these toxicities to the same degree. Some women sail through oh, endocrine absolutely. therapy. Absolutely. And some women are just, you know, have horrible experiences and we can't predict it. I still haven't figured out how to predict who's going to sail oh. and who's going to sink. <laughs> I was I was talking to a woman a couple of weeks ago, a, a colleague of mine, and and she's like, "Oh, I, I take AIs. It's been not been an issue." I'm like, "Well, hallelujah! I mean, that's that's great. That's that's not necessarily the experience for everyone, but you know, more power to you because we do know that you know they they are effective in in what they're intended for." Um, I do want to spend some time talking about some of those things that we can do to make the drugs more manageable. But there is one some, something I really want to highlight here. In my understanding, this hormone blocking or hormone suppression therapy is recommended for um, uh, now a 10-year course. Sometimes that can be tamoxifen and then switching to an AI at the right time, or depending on where you're at, it could be one drug or both drugs or whatever. But uh, one of the things I've been hearing uh, more frequently that is a little concerning to me is women saying that their doctors are telling them to be taking this for a lifetime, that they're going to be on this indefinitely. And I'm interested in your thoughts on that. Yeah, um, there was some discussion about, there's a, an annual conference every year called the San Antonio Breast, Care Symposium, Breast Cancer Symposium, and um, I attended it this last year, and there was some discussion about the, the length of time for endocrine therapy, and there's definitely not clear evidence that supports the indefinite use of these therapies at this time. It is a question, so it is going to be research. So women may be in a clinical trial that's looking at that issue. Um, but the the risk of recurrence does start to taper over time. So there is 
in all likelihood a point of point at which the risk of the drugs and the toxicity from the drugs outweighs the potential benefit in terms of risk reduction because the natural risk of recurrence is going so low or kind of going back to normal, if you will. Um, so I, I'm also not a fan of indefinite therapy until we have data to really back that up. Um, and I don't, so I don't think it's really a good evidence-based recommendation at this time. Great. Um, love, love to hear you say that because that's been my understanding. And um, just to what you said, it's my understanding that that risk of recurrence is, is really greatest in the first five years. It's not like if you take one of these drugs for like two years and then say, oh my God, I, I can't do this anymore. And you choose not to take it. You still get benefit from it. It's not like that, that benefit for the two years you took it has been taken away. You know, right. It's, you know, it's, as once again, it's it's just part of that whole picture and that complexity of looking at your own personal reaction. So even if you take it for two years and then it's it's like, um, I can't do this. Well, you've still gotten that benefit of two years, and that that first five years is a really crucial time. Yeah, and we don't again, you know, we don't know um, for shorter durations how much benefit you get as opposed to five years. But to your point, absolutely you do get those two years worth of benefit. I did just want to go back one quick second and say that there is a group of women who may be recommended ongoing or indefinite endocrine therapy for which it's appropriate. And that's women with metastatic breast cancer who are well controlled. Their disease is either resolving or it's not growing under the influence of tamoxifen or neuromatase inhibitor. In the context of their other options for therapies, that's considered a very low toxicity option. So those women definitely should stay on those uh, drugs as long as they work. Right. Um, I also want to mention there, there's some interesting studies that are going on um, with something called baby TAM, which is low dose tamoxifen. So tamoxifen is dosed for everybody at 20 milligrams a day. And that's actually a very redundant dosing. It's a very large dose of this drug. So it the idea is that basically there's so much tamoxifen in circulation, it's going to block every estrogen receptor everywhere. Um, but it's really more than most women need, actually. And researchers have figured this out. So they've done some clinical trials on lower dose, even as low as five milligrams instead of 20. Mm-hmm. And in women with ductal carcinoma in situ, sort of the so-called stage zero breast cancer, it appears in these early trials that the low-dose tamoxifen is as effective as the high-dose in terms of preventing their risk of developing invasive cancer, breast cancer, and is really well-tolerated, almost no side effects. Right. In fact, no side effects more than the women on placebo. So um, now these trials are starting to move into the women with invasive breast cancer, and to see if a low dose tamoxifen is an option, which I'm personally very excited about because Maybe if too. they can get the benefit of the tamoxifen without the side effects, we've, you know, hit it's a jackpot. A, it's a double winner. Yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll tell you just from my own personal perspective, um, this has always been my question because my career was based in being a pediatric ICU nurse. Mm. So every drug we give is individually calculated for that child's body weight. You would not give a newborn infant the same amount of Tylenol you would give a 10-year-old. I mean, that's, and so, um, so <laughs> my doctors get really frustrated because that's always my question. Like, could we look at this in terms mm-hmm. of, of graduated doses? Because, um, you know, that is a question. Is the same dose needed for every woman? 
you know, dependent of your body size or your metabolism or your particular characteristics. So this kind of research is really exciting to me because it's really consistent with the way I, I kind of view things anyway, but I'm an, I'm a old uh, nursery and pick you nurse. So um, I do math in my sleep. So you know, people, people actually love to travel with me to foreign countries because I, I can really do conversion rates really. I bet. <laughs> lightning speed. Cause it's just, it's just what I do. So in our uh, last few minutes, um, I would really like to go back and um, explore what you were talking about, about this fatty liver. Um, a little bit more and uh, what women can do to um, not only be proactive in identifying it, but what they can do to address it. And I think that that will just naturally lead into um, uh, what I would like to conclude with is, is that even if a woman chooses to stay on these meds with the side effect profile that they have, what are some of the things they can do? to make it more manageable. Yeah, so big topic, which we won't be able to cover in great detail, but I will right. say, so for the fatty liver, um, there are some really key critical things that every woman on tamoxifen should do. Number one is to eat a plant-forward diet. Uh, so a, a diet that's plant-based because plants, uh, vegetables, fruits, even whole grains have components in them which naturally reduce the inflammation and the increases basically the resistance, let's just say, on the part of the liver against this fat becoming inflamed, which is when it starts to cause problems. So eating a plant-forward diet is number one. Number two is regular exercise. Exercise is the most effective way, actually, to start to lower the amount of fat that's stored in the liver. So with the diet, we ha we're keeping the fat from getting inflamed. With the exercise, we're trying to reduce the amount of fat in the liver. Um, and we know from lots of studies that exercise also has the advantage of reducing the risk of recurrence. As I mentioned earlier, basically having the risk of, of recurrence. So we want to do at least moderately uh, moderate level of exertion, so somewhat breathless, 30 minutes a day, and more is better. So the more exercise you get in terms of time and intensity, the more benefit you get. And uh, then so you're referring to aerobic exercise or... Or aerobic. and resistance, and all of it. And yeah. resistance, yeah, that's... Mm -hmm. um, which is also good for your bone health in general. and Yes, 100%. Yeah. Uh, and then the third thing I would say is the uh, biggest dietary factor that directly causes fatty liver is high fructose corn syrup. So yes. you find that in sweetened drinks. So women on tamoxifen should not get anywhere near high fructose corn syrup on a regular basis. So that would be sodas and a lot of juices. Um, and though you know, just taking that out of the diet will help to mitigate some of the effects of the tamoxifen. So those would be the three things I would say, just right off the, the top. Um, add to that because I, um, <laughs> for for a while, I, I there was this um, designer coffee shop, and they would make these absolute fabulous lattes, but they would make it with agave syrup. Mm -hmm. You know, tasted wonderful but not so good for you. So after I had my little, you know, uh, uh, romance with that, um, really had to look at coming off of high fructose corn syrup, which agave syrup is. It yes, may be right. natural. It does not mean it's healthy. It's where we all need to become in the habit of reading labels. 
because high fructose corn syrup is added to things you would never even imagine. And you can read the ingredient list, and it's usually listed as number two or three. Um, hamburger buns, hot dog buns, um, a lot of prepackaged food. Uh, you may not even think that the food is sweet by taste, but it's still got high fructose corn syrup in it. So, so like you said, this is, this is um, the one directed thing that you can do, but it's something that you sort of have to teach yourself to start reading labels and you'll be surprised how, how pervasive it is in, in so many ingredients that, mm-hmm. and so many products we buy in the store. Mm-hmm. So I think in our last few minutes, you wanted me to address, was um, it just joint? Some- yeah, just some things that, you know, if women are having symptoms, just some of the things that we've already covered some of it, exercise, and certainly mm-hmm. your diet is going to decrease inflammation. So if you're having, you know, mm-hmm. some of the uh, joint stuff, that's definitely going to help. Um, mm-hmm. But um, are there other key points that you would... Yeah, so, um, you know, aromatase inhibitors really are hard on joints. And <clears throat> we know a couple of things. We know that women with adequate vitamin D, and now I just want to be very clear about this, that adequate vitamin D really is not very high. It's at least 30 nanograms per milliliter. But in the study specific to this issue, it's found that women with at least 66 nanograms per milliliter, which is a fairly high level of vitamin D, uh, have less joint pain when they're taking an aromatase inhibitor. That level of vitamin D is going to require supplementation of vitamin D. I would not go higher than that because vitamin D has a U-shaped curve. So the, you get diminishing returns with higher amounts of vitamin D. More is not better with vitamin D. Um, some practitioners are sort of in this uh, fairyland of trying to get people's vitamin D up to 80, 100, 120. There's no data for that. And in fact, right. that's probably starting to reverse some of the effects of vitamin D. So there's a really kind of a sweet spot, if you will, for vitamin D in this instance meaning joint pains from aromatase inhibitors of about probably 50 to 65 nanograms per milliliter. Um, So that's really important. The other thing is that we just want to reduce inflammation in general to help minimize the joint pains from aromatase inhibitors. So again, that plant-forward diet is really important. Um, Removing inflammatory foods like processed foods, in essence, um, people that are intolerant or allergic to certain foods should take those out of their diet making sure their joints are well lubricated with essential fatty acids from fish, seafood, nuts, seeds, and or supplementation of fish oil or algae oil. Um, And then just kind of our classic anti-inflammatory compounds, things like curcumin, or there's an herb called boswellia. Um, These are all things that can help and they play well with aromatase inhibitors. So you're not going to interfere with the effect of the aromatase inhibitors. So those are just, you know, really quickly some things that people can do. So just really the point, I think, is that there are ways to lessen that joint pain. And I, I, I like what you're saying. I mean, supplementation certainly in, in today's world and with our diets is, is important, but it's important to have good quality supplements, which is a whole other topic. Mm-hmm. You know, I sometimes think in the cancer world, I mean, and understandably, women, I I recently had a woman call me and she was taking 55 different supplements. And I was like, whoa, let's let's take a look. Why are you taking this? Where did you get the information? And unfortunately, a lot of that information came from the internet. And um, and, and it was like, you know, let's let's look at, you know, primarily, you know, some of the basics, you know, just some basic things that we know will support you. 
And um, I think sometimes in cancer, you know, like the minute you look it up, I don't know how it works on the computer, but all of a sudden you'll be getting all these ads about all these different supplements, you know, for cancer. And it's not like we have to go for every one that gets thrown our way. It's a matter of making a knowledgeable and informed choice. A hundred percent agree. So, um, so we are at the end of our time. I'm wondering if there's anything that you'd like to wrap up with, or if you'd like to, um, you know, give any contact information or information about your book, if women are interested in, in um, reading more of your uh, information and thoughts on this. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, thank you for having me on the show. It's been a delight. Um, and yes, my book is Definitive Guide to Cancer, an Integrative Approach to Prevention, Treatment, and Healing. And it can be found on any, you know, Amazon or any uh, national bookstore. My website is D-R-L-I-S-E, Dr. Lise, uh, dot net. I do have a clinical practice that's very limited, but I work at a clinic called Naturopathic Specialist with two other naturopathic oncologists who are excellent. And that website is listenandcare.com. There's also a whole network of naturopathic oncologists in the United States. And we have a website and there's a directory on that website. And so you can search for one near you. And that website is onc. ANP.org. So it stands for ONC, like Oncology, Association of Naturopathic Physicians. So ONCANP.org. Um, so I would encourage people to, to look there as well. Great. And I, and I would like to even add to that, um, depending on the practitioner, um, even if you live in an area where there's not one locally, many, especially in today's world of COVID, many are available to um, do telephone consults with you. And, you know, at least give you um, an overall game plan that you can take back to your your local um, care team and, and implement. So it's not necessarily something that you need to have somebody next door. It's, yes, it's, good, very good point and very true. Most of us are doing some form of telemedicine these days. Yeah, exactly. And even my doctor who is two minutes away from my house is still doing telemedicine because it's the yeah. world we live in. So um, thank you so much. I think this has just been so, um, it's just going to be so helpful. I, this, this information is basic, and I, I think it's just we all need to arm ourselves with um, as much information as we can so we can be an active participant. As I tell people, it's like once you get diagnosed with breast cancer, you've joined a private club that you didn't really want to be part of, but you're there. So, um, so this is the way that we can support each other, and I really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much. If you have any questions, you can contact me at RadicalHealthRN at gmail.com. There will also be uh, show notes and links to some of the stuff that we talked about today. Thanks for joining us today. If you have comments or questions about today's episode or how functional medicine can help you in your own recovery from breast cancer, you can contact Deborah at RadicalHealthRN at gmail.com. You can leave positive feedback and subscribe for future episodes on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Check out Deborah's website at www.boobsaren'tworthdyingfor.com for show notes, educational info, and other important links. Until next time.